Welcome, welcome to, to all of you. Welcome to our series, uh, Leading Together. For five weeks, we've been exploring the topic of women, men, and authority in the church. And uh, this might be your very first week that you're here, but um, we, we're, this is week four of our five-week series. And our desire as a church is to be followers of Jesus. Like, I think the commonality in this room is that, is that we're all here because we want to know Jesus and we want to understand uh, more of his life and his teachings, his death, his resurrection, and what that means for us today. So that, that gives us a lot of unity in the room here. And so with that unity of trying to know and follow Jesus, we're here because we want to understand his desire for his church, uh, which he calls his body. His, what the role that women and play in the leadership of that church. And the question we're asking is simply this, are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women? Are all leadership roles in the church open to both men and women? And here at North Langley, we're saying yes, yes. Women are called to serve in primary positions of leadership in the church. Men and women are called into leadership together, leading together. And this is a, a, a shift for us as a church. Our church has been a complementarian church, and we are shifting to become an egalitarian church. Now, I want to just explain those terms. Uh, it's been pointed out to me that it would be helpful each week to explain those two terms, because uh, this might be your first Sunday. So uh, the word egalitarian describes a group of churches globally around the world who see uh, the green light given to women to serve in the church in any and every position, like no restrictions, total equality, and, and freedom to serve. There's no like kind of glass ceiling there. So that's the egalitarian position. And the complementarian position uh, believes that men and women are created with equal dignity, uh, both saved equally, given gifts by the Spirit, called to minister, but that, um, that women are to serve under the leadership of men. Uh, under the authority of men. So there's different roles, and men just have the role of leadership. And so uh, that's the complementarian position. And my friend Keith pointed out a very helpful way of, of, of understanding this, a quick way to remember these words. Uh, egalitarian has the word gal in it, G-A-L. And the word complementarian has the word men in it, M-E-N, complementarian, egalitarian. So if you're at all confused, just think of that little trick and it'll help you out a bit. But like I've always said, these terms are not actually that helpful. Uh, there's many reasons why we shouldn't be using these words, but... I've also said these are the words that most churches around the world, uh, or sorry, in North America, uh, are using to describe um, uh, these two positions. So anyway, that's why we're going to use them in this series. And I read a quote uh, in the, on the very first week that said um, that, that these four professors, we, our leadership read a book called Two Views for Women in Ministry, and it actually was four views, because there are these four professors, all who love Jesus, Jesus-loving, faithful professors of, of the New Testament, and um, they wrote a book together, and where they disagreed with one another on this issue. And uh, they, they teach at some pretty amazing uh, seminaries, schools that equip pastors, and so... Uh, and, and they, they came together on a statement, and they, and they said that, 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 quote, a credible case can be made from the Bible for both positions in the church, right? That was the idea, is that a credible case can be made from the Bible for both of these positions. And I just want you to know, I believe that. 
I believe that. Many of, of uh, even though as, as I uh, am an egalitarian, I take the egalitarian position, many of the complementarians that argue uh, one, one, one way, I trust them. Like when we're doing series as a church, I go to their commentaries. I really trust them. They're bright scholars who love Jesus a lot. And so, um, and so really smart Christians uh, who love Jesus, who are faithful to God's word, land in two different camps on this issue. But in this series, in this series, I am trying to unpack a side that has not been seen as credible but it is biblical. There's been a, a, a number of churches that have not seen this position as biblical or credible. And so I'm trying to unpack that side. I'm also trying to unpack the side that I believe is the better reading of all the data, of all of Scripture's data. I'm also trying to unpack the side that now gives clarity to women in our church family. And I'm trying to unpack the side that brings us into alignment with our denomination. Our denomination is a network of churches called the Mennonite Brethren. That's our denomination. Uh, and, and as we move it, to be a church that's an that has an egalitarian position, that is more in line with our Mennonite Brethren denomination. In 2005, 2006, our denomination moved to become egalitarian. And so I hope that that gives you and I confidence that North Langley is not headed into uncharted waters, right? But this issue has been prayed through, studied, worked on by godly people in our network of churches, our family of churches. In a recent article uh, I, 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 that I read by Tim Keller, he referenced Archibald Alexander, the 19th century professor at Princeton, who said, strive for truth, not victory. That whenever you are entering into a complex situation, strive for truth, not victory. And, and, that's, and I love that quote, and I, I believe that's, what, that's the journey we're on. We are... Together, we want to see the truth that comes from Jesus, the truth of the scriptures. We're not trying to win an argument, not at all. Um, I hope I'm doing uh, 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 the right role in presenting uh, this side and making a credible case from the Bible for, for the egalitarian side. But this is about unity, that, that, that our unity here as a church would be anchored in the truth of Scripture, would be anchored in Jesus. I think complementarians, egalitarians together, we're gathered around the Word of God, and in humility and grace for one another, we strive for truth, not victory over one another, for truth. And so, three weeks ago, in the book of Genesis, we saw women and men called to co-rule in creation. That the hierarchy came in Genesis 3, right? Where men rule over women. But that in the book of Genesis, chapters 1 and 2, we see this partnership of co-ruling in creation. Then, two weeks ago, we saw all kinds of women that God has raised up as leaders amongst his people in the Bible. Uh, woman leader after woman leader after woman leader throughout the scriptures, we saw the beautiful role that God has for women in leading his people. And then last week, uh, if you were with us, we saw Paul doing something very specific. He was limiting some married women in 1 Corinthians 14 from speaking in the church in Corinth in order to bring order to the worship gathering but that he was not silencing women in the church kind of forever, right? Because women were prophesying in Corinth. 
you remember that last week? Women were prophesying. And that was a good thing. And so as these weeks are building upon each other, I hope we're all beginning to see that we are better when women and men are leading together. Jesus, we come to you and we are asking in your mercy that you would pour your truth out upon us. Give us eyes to see. Give us clarity of mind. I pray that, um, I pray that in this moment your spirit would move in such a beautiful way in the room and that you would bring clarity, light, healing, hope, that you would fill this room with your presence and that you would do truly only what you can do. Um, I think of, of the Apostle Paul who said, he did not come to the church at Corinth with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I recognize that my words will always fall short, but this is all about you. This is about your spirit. Holy Spirit, what do you wanna do? What do you wanna say? Would you, would you do it? Would you say it in this place? Speak to us. Amen. Two weeks ago, Yolande Nell, reporting for the BBC in Jerusalem, wrote about the very first woman to be ordained uh, in recent history as a pastor in the Holy Land. Nell writes this, quote, In many parts of the Christian world, female leaders are no longer unusual, or church female leaders are no longer unusual. But until now, the Holy Land had not seen a local woman ordained. On Sunday... A Palestinian from Jerusalem, Sally Azar, became the first woman pastor at an event at the Lutheran Church in the heart of the old city in Jerusalem, attended by hundreds of international well-wishers. Uh, Sally said this, she said, I got more excited seeing the excitement of other people. It's an indescribable feeling to take this step with the support of the church. And then she said this, I hope that many girls and women will know this is possible and that other women in other churches will join us. I know it will take a long time, but I think it could be exciting if this, uh, if this changes in Palestine. So what a beautiful story, right? I, I, I love that story. The first woman ordained in the Holy Land. <clears throat> but is it right? Is it right? Is this just kind of a cultural shift? sign of the times? Is this, is this a decision that lines up with the truth of the scriptures? If you will, would you turn uh, to the book of 1 Timothy? If you brought your Bible here today, we're going to do some flipping around today. So I hope you have your Bible. Um, and uh, we're going to read our passage, which is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 15. 11 to 15. Paul writes this. And he's writing just, you know, to Timothy in the city of Ephesus, writing, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Now, as I've been saying, if I were in a hotel and grabbed a Gideon's Bible from the hotel room, you know those free Bibles? And I had no knowledge of the Bible. I was not a Christian. I just opened up the Bible one night and I just started reading this verse in this English translation, this is going to be very important, this English translation, and I was not looking at the context, I was not looking at the Greek, what would I think? 
What would I think? Well, I think I would think uh, women should not teach or have authority over a man. But then also, I think I would think, huh, seems like Christians believe that women are easily deceived and that they'll be saved through childbearing? That's the plain reading, right? So I think that's what I would think, right? D.A. Carson, a complementarian scholar, argues that this verse fits in with God's plan for his church to have a structure of male authority. So he writes this. He says, a strong case can be made for the view that Paul refused to permit any woman to enjoy a church-recognized teaching authority over men. And he cites this verse, 1 Timothy 2, 11. Now, as I've asked before, egalitarians, what do you do with this verse? How do you make sense of it? I don't believe that it's enough to say, well, that's the Bible, right? Like, and it's misogynistic, and it's 2023 now, and that's an archaic book, and so I just choose to ignore that verse. Skip over it. I don't think that works. But complementarians, what do you do with this verse? How do you, how do you make sense of it? Because I don't believe it's enough to say, see, boom, mic drop, male leadership. You see it right there, right? Paul believes in male leadership, it's clear. Because if it's that clear, Paul also seems to say that women will be saved through childbearing. Is that what you believe? That women will be saved by God by having children, having babies? What about those who are single? What about couples who can't have children? I mean, I hope we can all acknowledge that a plain reading is troublesome no matter which side you take, right? This, this verse requires a deep dive. So, recap so far. We've heard God's heart for women and men to partner in co-ruling in Genesis, as I mentioned earlier. We've seen example after example of women in the New Testament church leading. Last week in 1 Corinthians, we see women praying and prophesying in the church. So, when you and I come to this verse, you and I should feel the tension. I did. I'm like, what? What's going on? Wait, wait, just a second. So I saw God's heart for partnership in Genesis. I see this long line of women leaders throughout the Bible. So this verse says that women must be silent. That should create a tension in me. So I am going to challenge all of us, egalitarians, complementarians alike, to not assume this is easy. This is not an easy verse. If you would like and do a fun little study, look up online the many, the many books that have been written about these verses. There are many, many, right? It requires hard work to roll up our sleeves, to do the hard work of doing this, traveling back 2,000 years, entering the church gathered in the Greek city of Ephesus, and listen to Paul writing to his protege, Timothy, and doing our best to capture Paul's heart for the church at Ephesus, for the Ephesian church. So, Let's do this together. You ready? Woo! Okay, sounds like it. All right, let's do this. Okay, so if you could turn, we're going to read the very first verses of 1 Timothy and the last verses of 1 Timothy, because 1 Timothy is a letter, right? It's a letter. So we're going to read the first verses and the last verses. And what we want to do is we want to notice the theme of the letter. That's very important to get the context. It's the theme of the letter. And the theme of the letter is false teaching. There are people in the church at Ephesus teaching things that are not God's truth. 
And Paul sent Timothy to the church in Ephesus to sort it all out. So let me show you what I mean. Turn to the very first verses in 1 Timothy. Look at verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach, there it is, false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. Okay, so pause there. Now flip over a few pages to chapter 6. And look at the last couple verses of chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. He ends the letter by saying this, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. Now notice the bookends, right? The problem in Ephesus is false teaching, and the letter is bookended by this concern that Paul has. He really wants Timothy to lean in and to fix it. So that's the context of the letter. That's the problem, and that will mean something uh, in a number of minutes when we dive into the depth here. Then start, look at chapter 2. If we, if we begin in chapter 2, what's the context of chapter 2? So we've seen the context of the whole letter. It's like one of those like Russian wooden dolls, right? Where you like take off the top and there's another one in it and then you take off that and there's another one in it. So we're just working our way down to the context, right? So now we move a deeper layer and we say the context of chapter two is Paul's desire for peace in the church. If you have your Bible open, you'll see verses one and two. They're talking about how the church should be a people of prayer and peace. He wants the church to be a space of prayer and peace. Then if you skip down to verse 8, he wants men to be men who are not angry and argumentative, but men of prayer, right? Lift up holy hands in prayer. And then notice verse 9. This is really interesting. He wants women to dress modestly in the church in a way that doesn't show the division between wealthy women and poor women in the church. So you notice the reference to, you know, gold and braided hair and all this other stuff. This was a sign that there were wealthy women in Ephesus who were kind of a class above poorer women. And Paul's like, don't do that, right? Don't show such inequality in the church. And he really cares about that. He wants peace. He wants the church to be a place of prayer. And so we notice Paul really cares about how women and men are behaving in the church. And he wants to be this, this, the church to be this place of prayer and peace and humility, which brings us to our verse, verse 11. Okay, verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Now, I want to just pause really quick and look at the first four words. A woman should learn. Okay, just pause right there. A woman should learn. Already, just so you know, in my research, I am told how countercultural this really was. I want you to listen to the words of the Jewish Talmud at this time in history. The Talmud, just so you know, was a source for, for Jewish daily life. It's not the Bible, but it was massively important to describe and give guidance for how Jews lived. So the Jerusalem Talmud writes, it says this, quote, better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. Better to burn the Torah, that's God's law. Better to burn God's law rather than teach it to a woman. This gives you a flavor for the kind of world that Jesus lived in, that Paul lived in. So when Jesus draws women into his group of disciples, when Jesus is teaching women, you know, from God's law, 
bringing a fulfillment of God's law, right? He is going against the grain of his culture. But Christians, following the teachings of Jesus, believe that women should learn. And Paul believes that women should learn. They're called to be disciples, apprentices of Jesus. So, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. All right, quietness and full submission. All of us, because we're in the 21st century, immediately we're like, that's restrictive, right? Boom, that's what our hearts, that's what we feel when we go to that. Quietness, full submission. But would it interest you to know that these words describe the posture of a good student in the Bible? It's a good student. Because what do good students do? They, they humble themselves and they come under the teachings of the professor, the rabbi, right? We, so we come under the teachings of Christ. We humble ourselves and we quietly, that's a good thing, quiet, you're being quiet, thank you so much, that's wonderful, uh, and, and, and we're quiet, we're learning, we're coming under the teaching to learn. Um, and I would hope that this would be the posture of all of Jesus' disciples, the Greek word for quietness is the word hesukia, hesukia. That's important because that Greek word is also used when Paul stands up to defend himself in Jerusalem. An entire quiet, uh, crowd goes quiet and they, and they listen in, right, to Paul. They're attentive to his, listen to this, Acts 22. When they heard him, that's Paul, speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. So quiet's not like rude. <laughs> it's not a rude, it's attentive very attentive. The crowd goes quiet and they're attentive. So this is attentive listening. Thomas Leah and Hayden Griffin argue that Paul was not demanding physical silence, but a teachable spirit. So what's Paul saying? He's saying women at the church of Ephesus. There's a group of women he's talking to and he's saying, I want you to have a teachable spirit, attentive listeners, right? I want you to learn, but come, come under the teaching and, and be attentive. Okay, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now notice the two words, teach and authority. Teach and authority. Those are massive in our study today. We're going to park on that word authority, and we're going to spend a good chunk of time right now on that word authority, believe it or not. Okay, but let me say this before we do. Alita Friesen and Chris Price in their book, The Whole Church, make a great point. They say, quote, no matter what position you hold in this debate, everyone believes that Paul is referring to a certain type of teaching. For example, no one thinks that Paul is forbidding women from teaching other women or from women teaching children. So hopefully egalitarians and complementarians agree that Paul is referring to a type of teaching. Now this is where the debate begins. Complementarians say that the type of teaching is this authoritative teaching where men are present. So complementarians say, listen, women can teach children, women can teach other women, but women cannot teach other men because they would be taking authority over men and God does not allow that, right? So that's the kind of teaching. But egalitarians believe that this is a domineering sinful type of teaching that Paul's prohibiting. Egalitarians are going to argue that, that this is not a good teaching or a good authority, that this is a domineering kind of authority that Paul wants women to stay away from. Does that make sense? Okay, it doesn't have to fully make sense just yet, but I'm just showing you where we're going here. So let's talk about the word authority. Authority. 
Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. So in the Greek, it's the word authentane. Authentane. Can you say that to your neighbor? Authentane. A little louder. Authentane. Say it again. Authentane. It's a, it's a, you're going you're gonna to want to remember that word. Authentane for life group discussion later on this week. Okay? Interesting fact. This is the only place where this word is used in the entire New Testament. I'm pausing for dramatic effect. Okay? <laughs> it's the only time this word. So you might already say, wait, the word authority is used a lot in the New Testament. More on that in a second. But this is the only time this Greek word is used in the entire New Testament. And the word is used only twice in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Did you know that? This is a tricky word. Uh, Linda Belleville on how tricky this word is. Quote, it cannot be stressed enough that in authentain, Paul picked a term used nowhere else in the New Testament and only twice in the entire Greek Bible. More, in the Greek Old Testament, which is the Septuagint, its usage does not easily fit our passage. In the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 12, it's used of the act of murder. Those, the Canaanites, who live long ago in your holy land, you hated for the detestable practices, parents who murder, authentas, helpless lives. Authentas, authentane, right? Authentas is murder. And yet, your English Bible, many of your English Bibles, will read uh, with the English word authority. Now, this word authentane has been a problem for Bible translators, most English translations, as I just mentioned, pick the positive word authority. But this is a bit deceiving, right? Because the most common word for authority in the New Testament is the word exousia. Exousia. Can you say that to your neighbor? Exousia. Now say it again and say it louder. Exousia. Exousia. Okay. All right. Exousia is used in the New Testament about 100 times. Exousia is used in the New Testament a hundred times. Authentane, once, right here, right? So when Jesus stands up in Matthew chapter 28 and he's talking to his disciples, these are some of his last words, he says this, he says, all authority, exousia, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. All exousia has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go and make disciples. Authority is a really good word. It's a positive word. It's a word that Jesus gives his disciples. But exousia is not authentane. Exousia, used a hundred times in the New Testament, but authentane is used only once, right here in 1 Timothy 2. Are you catching the problem? Right? So what does this word mean? Well, Belleville did some great research on this very question, and she said this, quote, the semantic range of authentane includes not only murderer, but also sponsor, perpetrator, originator, and mastermind of a crime or act of violence. For instance, the Jewish historian Josephus speaks of the author, authentane, of a poisonous drink. Diodorus of Sicily talks of the sponsors, authentas, of daring plans, and the perpetrators, authentes, of a sacrilege, and the mastermind, authentas, of a crime. This is incredibly interesting, right? Because when, when scripture translators don't 
see the use of the word in the rest of the Bible, they have to go outside the Bible to figure out how was it used in this day and age. And the list is not great. Poisoning someone's drink? Murder? Right? On top of that, the first and second century historians use this word. Um, they say they look back at history, and this word is used uh, to describe the mastermind behind the massacre of the Thracians at Myronea and the robbing of the sacred temple at Delphi. Massacre? Robbing? <laughs> Stealing? Right? Therefore, a better translation, which is in line with how the word was used in Paul's day, is that the word authentane means to dominate, to get your way. It's to dominate or get your way. You might find it interesting that two of the very earliest Latin translations of the Bible, ranging from the second century to the fifth centuries, use the Latin word dominari, dominari, to dominate, right? That does not sound positive to me, <laughs> to dominate. So I believe that this word that Paul uses is about dominating someone else or gaining the upper hand over someone else or controlling someone else. It's not a good word. It's not a good word. But exousia, well, this is Jesus' teaching authority. His authority to forgive sins and cast out demons. And so here's my only point, and this is a big one. If Paul wanted a positive word, if Paul wanted a positive authority, he had this word, exousia, at his disposal, but he didn't use it. A hundred times a positive word is used. But right here, he does not use a positive use of authority. Do you see the problem? Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what would complementarians say to you, Matthew? Like, what, what's their pushback? You know, what are they thinking? Well, one thing that complementarian complementarians scholars have pointed out is that sometimes authentane, uh, or, or its root word, can be a positive act, right? For instance, when God does it. When God takes control, right? So when God does it, I think, I think one of the references is God does this to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And so they're like, well, see, it's not a negative word. It's a positive word. God is doing it, right? But the positive and negative use of the word has a lot to do with who's doing it and who it's being done to, right? While God, maybe in his authority and justice, can do it to Sodom, can you and I do it to each other? Probably not, right? So in all human interactions, the word is used incredibly negatively. Murder, poison a drink, dominate. Okay, so uh, one other thing to notice that is that in the Greek, the word for teach and authority are coupled together. It's teach and authority, right? It's like this double, uh, this little couplet here, teach and authority. They're linked together so that, so the teaching is a dominating teaching. The teaching is a controlling type of teaching. So I think Paul is saying something like this, and this is the Matthew translation, the MT. Um, it's not out yet, but uh, we will be publishing it. No. Uh, I do not permit a woman to teach in a domineering and controlling way over a man. She must be quiet. Okay. So again, according to this view, there's a problem with how certain women in the church at Ephesus were going about their teaching. The problem in Ephesus is how the women are teaching, not that women are teaching. Does that make sense? So just, you know, you don't have to agree. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just hoping I'm, I'm being clear with just what this means. 
It's very interesting because when I have watched complementarian scholars talk about this passage, um, uh, I, I actually just watched two, just, you know, two that I really respect uh, on YouTube. Uh, it popped up. Um, maybe I'm searching a lot of things on YouTube about women, and, but there's these two complementarian scholars that I, and they launched into this discussion on 1 Timothy 2, um, and they went immediately to it being positive authority, immediately, and they didn't even acknowledge the, the difficulty of translation of this, of this word, which I felt like, whoa, okay, so now we're having this 20-minute video on YouTube of authority, authority, a positive authority, when in reality, you got to stop, and we got to humble ourselves in front of this word, authentic, and go, what does that mean? It cannot mean positive authority, in my view. So see, right out of the gates, complementarians and egalitarians understand this passage differently. So again, do you, if you're a complementarian, see this as good authority? Or as an egalitarian, is this prohibiting a group of women from dominating and controlling in a sinful way? So how you land that makes a big difference, as you can tell. This one Greek word makes a huge difference. Okay, let's move on to verses 13 to 14. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. Okay, so now we're hitting rewind. We're going back to Genesis 1 to 3, the very opening stories, story uh, in the Bible. So Paul's going to go back to creation to make a point. And whenever Paul does that, when any New Testament writer does that, it's important. We need to lean in and listen. So, the complementarian position on why Paul goes back to Adam and Eve is very clear. I want you to listen to Redeemer Church. This is Tim Keller's church, a complementarian church, describing the importance of why Paul goes back to Adam and Eve. They write this, quote, Eve's initiative in taking the forbidden fruit first and then giving it to Adam reversed the roles that God had created. This was a usurping of authority on the part of Eve and an abrogation of authority on the part of Adam. For this reason, Paul especially wants to protect God, God's original intention or design for man and woman subsequent to their fall by retaining this God-ordained authority structure. So, even though I disagree with this interpretation, it is a strong interpretation. And so we who take an egalitarian position, what do we say to this? Why is Paul going back to Adam and Eve? Why would he do that? Well, first of all, I want to just notice something interesting about the quote I just read from Redeemer Church, right? Did you notice the constant reference to positive authority? I'm just going to quote from the quote. <laughs> This was a usurping of authority on the part of Eve, an abrogation of authority on the part of Adam, retaining this God-ordained authority structure. Authority, authority, authority. <laughs> but as we've just seen, it is not at all clear that this passage is about authority. Again, I believe that it's clear that the word authentane is not about positive authority, but about a domineering attitude, a controlling attitude. So let's, let's, let's unpack this. What does this verse mean? So for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So as we travel back to the early uh, story of the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, let me ask, and this is a real question, and I hope you'll give a verbal response to this. To whom did God give the command to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Adam, yes. Okay, Adam had the responsibility, had the duty to share the truth with his wife, to share that truth accurately. How did he do? Not good. Yeah, poorly. (laughs) Because, if you'll remember this moment, when Satan comes to tempt Eve, Eve adds to God's rules. Have you ever noticed that in the story? It's really fascinating. See, God had told Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree. Don't eat from it, right? But when the serpent, when Satan comes to Eve and tempts her, she says, she adds a law. She says, God told us not to touch the tree. God God never said that, right? God never said not touch the tree. That's That's an addition to God's law. So we've got all kinds of questions swirling. Questions like, did Eve add that on her own? Did she add that prohibition on her own? Or was Eve poorly taught by Adam? Or how well did Adam pass along the truth to her? Like, did he take his responsibility seriously and give her the accurate truth that God had said to her? Ben Witherington writes this, quote, only Adam is instructed about the prohibition in regard to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was his duty to properly instruct Eve as she was not around when that prohibition was given. As the story develops, it is clear enough that Eve had not been properly instructed. She talks about not touching the fruit of the tree, which was not part of the original prohibition. So this is big. This is why I believe Paul references the story of Adam and Eve. He's saying, hey, you know, Timothy, in your mind, when you're trying to lead the church at Ephesus, go back to Adam and Eve. This is like story numero uno of like the responsibility you and I have of imparting the truth, the right, God's right words to one another, right? And, and, this, and this story is perfect to illustrate the problem at Ephesus. Certain high status women, remember the fancy clothes in verse nine, right? These high status women are starting to teach in a controlling and domineering way in the church at Ephesus, if, if you will, look at chapter 5. In chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, this group of women are starting to follow Satan now. And like Eve, some of these women in Ephesus may be teaching heresy. Remember how we bookended the book, 1 Timothy, and heresy? So you've got heresy going on. You've got a certain group of women following Satan now. You have certain women who are, 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 have, you know, are showing their high status separating themselves from poor women in the congregation. And so like Eve, Paul's saying, listen, Timothy, instruct these women that they need to humble themselves. They need to learn. They need to be instructed. Should they learn? Absolutely they should learn. But they should come attentive, submitting themselves under the truth of the scriptures or under the truth of God as spoken through the apostles, right? They need to come under proper teaching and listen in humility. Alita Friesen and Chris Price argue the following. They say, quote, in being formed first, Adam possessed information which Eve did not have firsthand access to, making it necessary for her to be instructed. Without this guidance, she would be extremely vulnerable to Satan's false teaching or mishandling of God's word. With this in mind, we believe that Paul is referencing the creation story to address the issue of vulnerability to false teaching. You know, I think in great love, Paul the apostle loves this, this group of women in the church. He wants the best for them. 
They need to learn properly. They're, they're vulnerable, just like Eve was to deception. So I think it's important right now to highlight another factor that makes a big difference with, in how we interpret this passage. Are you familiar with the cult of Artemis? The cult of Artemis. Everyone in Paul's day would have known that in Ephesus, in this city, there was the cult of Artemis. The city of Ephesus was centered upon the worship of the goddess Artemis, or as the Romans called her, Diana. Her temple was one of the seven wonders of the world. That's a pretty big deal. Her entire priesthood was composed of women. She, Artemis, was said to be superior to the male gods because she would turn from their affection. Think about it. Paul is writing to a church in a city centered upon the worship of the goddess Artemis with an entire female priesthood and the belief in the superiority of women. Do we think that might have something to do with what we're reading in 1 Timothy? Christians in Ephesus were turning away from the worship of Artemis in Ephesus, and they were turning to Jesus. And a riot starts because of it. You can read about that riot later in Acts 16. Sometimes there's the pushback of like, now you're talking about the cult of Artemis? What does that have to do with the Bible? It's in the Bible. Acts 16. <laughs> it's a big deal. So many Christians are turning to Jesus and turning away from the worship of Artemis that this riot starts, right? Belleville on this point. Why were the Ephesian women acting this way? One explanation is that they were influenced by the cult of Artemis, where the female was exalted and considered superior to the male. So again, might the cult of Artemis have something to do with Paul's words to Timothy, trying to lead this little church in the city of Ephesus? Could it be that many Ephesian women who worshipped Artemis are coming to know the good news of Jesus, and they're carrying into the church, the early church, that dominating spirit? Authentine. Were they carrying with them into the church this way of teaching that was superior or aggressive? Craig Keener asked this Is it merely a coincidence that the one church where false teachers targeted women is the one church where Paul forbids women to teach? The point Paul is making here is that women in Ephesus need to learn. They need to learn theology. They need to learn doctrine. They need to learn the, learn the truth of God's word. They need to learn it well. Because if they don't learn it well, they'll be placed in a vulnerable position the way Eve was placed. So rather than this being about a passage about who has good authority, exousia, right? This is actually a call to see women discipled and freed from that dominating type of teaching. Scott McKnight, Blue Parakeet. He says this, quote, Paul's focus here is not on what women cannot do, but on what these women must do, learn. He's not concerned with silence in general, in general, but with silence in order to learn. One final question before I summarize where we're at here. Um, if this passage is about good authority, as the complementarian position believes, what a what about Priscilla and her teaching authority over Apollos? What about the Apostle Junia and her authority, her apostolic authority? See, women seem to have had authority over the church, 
over men in the church. So I don't believe this is about good authority. It's about getting certain women in Ephesus to turn from their domineering control to humbly learn. So here's my summary. Look at Genesis. See the story of Eve. Women should learn the truth. If they don't learn the truth, they're open to deception. Here in Ephesus with the cult of Artemis in the dominating or domineering spirit of the age, women should learn quietly and in full submission, totally attentive to the word of God. This will allow them to be educated in the truth and then the church will look different. Women won't teach in a domineering way like they teach in Ephesus. No, they'll teach the truth in a godly way, in a humble way. So, I turn the tables back to you. What do you see in the text? What do you see? As you pull all the data together in your own mind, in your own heart, is this a passage about good male authority over women and women needing to be silent under that male authority? Or is this passage about a certain group of women in Ephesus humbling themselves and opening their hearts to be discipled in the truth? There are two, two choices before There's a choice before you, right? Which of these two makes most sense of the context of false teaching, of the book of Genesis, of the long list of women who have led in the church? Bring all the data together. And I think uh, and I believe that this is about a group of women needing to be discipled. As you can tell, how we understand 1 Timothy 2 matters. Think of the countless women who have not been allowed to lead in the church because of a certain interpretation of these words. Getting this right matters. I think all of us can agree on that. Getting this right matters to the many women who are called to lead now and the many young girls who will soon hear the call from their Savior to lead. Let's end with Jesus. Verse 15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. At which point you ask, where is Jesus in this passage, Matthew? Okay, well, give me a second. This has been a painful verse for women in multiple ways, right? The idea that only mothers are saved or the, you know, for those women who cannot have their own children. Um, does this not encourage the idea of, of, of works, right? That we're saved by our own works. There's lots of complicated things when it comes to a plain reading of this verse. But I want, to cons I want you to consider two things. Something to consider. First of all, Artemis was the goddess of fertility. Did you know that? Many women in Ephesus would look to her for help in getting pregnant and safely delivering a child. It was the worship of her that would hopefully allow her to be, a woman to be able to deliver her child safely. And if you'll remember in Genesis 3, in the curse of the fall, it led to great pain in childbearing. You remember that? The curse of the fall. Could it be that Paul wants women to know that it's God, not Artemis, God, who will keep them safe, literally save them through the painful process of giving birth to a child? It's like, look to God. Don't look to Artemis. Look to God. He'll save you. That could be it. Or, here's another way to look at the verse, and this is the way that I'd prefer to interpret this verse. But women will be saved through the childbearing. 
Did you know that there is a definite article in the Greek before childbearing? Some of your English translations won't show that. There's a definite article. It's the childbearing. It's not childbearing in general. It's the childbearing. The childbearing? The child? Could it be that Paul is pointing to Mary, the new Eve, the one who gives birth to Jesus, that through the bearing of a child, women and men, of course, will all be saved from the curse of the fall? Go back with me in your mind to the curse. You remember when God curses the serpent, he says that one day she, the woman, will give birth to a son, that the serpent will strike his heel, but that he will crush the head of the serpent. Do you remember that? It's the good news. One day, a woman will give birth to a son, and he will crush the head of the serpent. It's the good news. The seed of Eve would come and crush the head of the serpent. This is pointing forward to Jesus. Nor thankfully, you are saved through the child who was born to reverse the curse of the fall. You are saved through the one who is making all things new. You're saved through the one who, was, who has destroyed the walls and barriers between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, men and women, and is calling us to become one. One in him, totally free and totally healed. It's the good news of the gospel. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. You will be saved through the childbearing. We celebrate it every Christmas. Merry Christmas. Let's take communion now. We remember his body given for us, his blood shed for us. We come right now and we remember the cross, the moment when the head of the serpent was crushed.